Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome listeners, you're on Big Little Small Talk with me, Megan O'Hara-Sullivan. Today I'm interviewing someone who's got an extensive list of achievements. Her name's Elise Nilligan sometimes known as Speedy. We're going to know why she's called Speedy at some time during this interview, but I'll just say welcome and thank you for making time for me, Elise. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Megan. I'm chuffed that you asked me on your podcast. Oh, well, I think that you've done a lot of interviews, you've done a lot of things in your life, but um, I want to start with the most recent um, incident that's happened to you. Now, the listeners won't know unless they know you personally, but you're in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Something happened to you and your family just recently. Can you tell me what it was? Yes, unfortunately my car was stolen, but the issue was it had my wheelchair in the boot and all of my equipment that I need to travel in the car. So um, having that car taken meant that I was housebound. What happened? I know that I saw it on Facebook and um, it had been shared, you know, 300 and something or other times. So someone came, stole the car out of the driveway. Yes. And took off with it. Yep. And you came out in the morning, was it? No, um, we actually heard them get in the car. And so we raced to the front door and saw them driving off. And I can't tell you, my heart just sank. And so how long was it between when that happened and when you knew the fate of the car? Tell what, what happened. Did, did the, was the wheelchair recovered? or? Yeah, I think it was about over two weeks it took for the car to be located. Um, they actually found it abandoned on the side of the road. Um, the criminals had used it to burn out another car and my car had died and so they just left it there. So we were very, very fortunate um, that it just was abandoned. Um, and the police were able to recover it. But when we got it back, nothing was in it. But um, the Not poli- the wheelchair or anything? No, no, not even um, my disability parking permit. We had other people's things in our car, <laughs> like tools. It's just like, oh my goodness, this isn't mine, this isn't mine. Like, yeah, very interesting times. I, I don't need any tools, but I sure need my wheelchair. So what happened then? Um, the wheelchair was recovered in Oki by the Oki police. So we were very, very lucky um, and they brought it straight back to me as soon as they recovered it. So was it just on the side of the road or was it in someone's house? or Yeah, yeah. They, they knew where it was, yeah, right. so they were able to get it. All right. So, Elise, have you always been in a wheelchair? Yes. Um, so I never made my milestones and so I never crawled or walked. Um, and so I had a lot of physio as a young child to see just where my limit would be. Um, and I was able to pedal a little trike. So when I went off to primary school, that's how I went off to school, um, which was pretty different for back then. Um, but then they decided it might be easier for me to be able to get around school and our community in a chair. So I got my first chair at five years old. When were your parents aware that something was going on? Um, I think probably around six to eight months when I just wasn't making those uh, normal milestones like sitting up, swallowing food easily. I wasn't pulling myself up to go around furniture. So it was becoming apparent that something just wasn't quite right. 
Right, and, and what was the diagnosis then? Well, it took a long time and a lot of testing. I actually had a muscle biopsy, which is a piece of, of actual muscle cut out of your arm and examined under a microscope. And so they found some uh, like mitochondrial difference in the muscle structure, but not like a huge amount. So they decided it was um, either center core myopathy or mini core myopathy, which are extremely rare genetic disabilities. Um, but that's about all that's known about it. So it just means I'm generally weak. Um, some people with my disease walk and some people use a wheelchair. Mm. Had you older brothers and sisters? No, I'm the young, uh, I'm the oldest um, and the only child of that marriage. Um, my parents were told it was probably good not to have any more children. Right. Yeah. And, and have you since found out that that's probably not true or...? Well, I guess doctors can be a bit fatalist sometimes. You know, they think that, oh, my goodness, you could have another child that has a disability. But in reality, the odds are about 50-50. So you could have four kids without it, but you could have four kids with it. Mm. You just don't know. It's a lottery. So um, <laughs> I, I do want to tell the listeners about your, um, you know, some of the things. So you, you call yourself a disability advocate. Yes. Yeah. You're also um, a political activist. Yes. <laughs> You're a model. Yes. You're a mum. Yes. You have a partner. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, why are you called Speedy? Ah, I love it. I love it. Um, uh, I was in year nine at high school and our PE teacher decided that I was the speediest in the class and um, the name has stuck. There are people that have known me my entire life and don't ever call me Elise. You know, it's it's become a bit of an identity. Yeah, it's cute. Tell me about um, your identity as a as a disability advocate. Um, and I mean, the whole sort of you and I saw each other the other day at the um, Business Disability Awards, which is a an amazing organisation that gives awards to businesses that employ people with disability. And I think you have been involved in that in some capacity. Have yeah. you been an award winner? Or? No, I haven't. No, yeah. uh, been a um, nominee a couple of times, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, this uh, people say, oh, I don't see you've, your disability anymore, Elise. What, what, you know, what does that feel like? Look, it's something I straight away like to challenge because it's wonderful that people want to accept me and people like me as a whole person, and that's beautiful. But if you don't see my disability, you're not seeing a huge part of my identity and all of the challenges that come with that. It's like saying that you don't see someone's race or you don't see someone's gender. If you don't look at that, you're not examining the whole picture. And I think it's really critical that we acknowledge it but also celebrate it. Mm. So people who say that to you, thinking that it's kind of a nice thing to say, that's almost sort of wiping away part of your identity as well, is it? That's yeah. right, yeah. And what are the changes that you've seen for people with disability? You know, is it around the language or is it around access? or And what are the irritating things that people do and don't do? Mm. I think, look, when I went to go to school... I was denied schooling at first. So we have come a long way since the early 1990s because we still had a very segregated society. You know, um, 
I'm really the first generation, and very lucky I know it, that the first generation of disabled people to ever get a proper mainstream education and have opportunities. You know, and if we think to the generation before me, they were still in institutions. So this is really new for society and we're, we're still breaking down that stigma. So I think we've come a long way in education, in access. I think our communities are getting more accessible, which is amazing. Businesses are starting to realise, hey, uh, you actually want to come here, you want to eat here, you want to shop here. You know, we're starting to change that, which is really, really good, you know. But in terms of attitudes towards us, I think we still have a long way to go. So um, you'd be amazed at some of the things that happen to me in public. Um, tell me tell me about some of those things. <laughs> uh, people will come up and pat me on the head like I'm, you know, a young child. They will talk to you loudly because they think that you're deaf or hard of hearing or that you might have an intellectual disability as well, which, I mean, you might, but don't talk to us like we're silly. You know, um, uh, I've had people refuse to serve me. A lot of people will speak to your carer or your partner or your parents and not speak to you. And it's like, um, excuse me, I'm the one with the credit card. You can, you can serve me, you know. So there's still, we can be very invisible in public and that's why I'm so um, out and proud and brightly coloured because I want to break down those stigmas, you know, so people actually understand us and look at us as a whole person. Yeah. I want to talk about your fashion because uh, it's wonderful and, <laughs> um, and you dressed very brightly in pink today and I don't know whether that's anything to do with the Barbie movie being released, but we'll <laughs> go there in a minute because, I mean, it is, a big, it is a big part of your identity, I know. When people are talking to you um, and they're standing up, do you prefer them to sit down or try, crouch down? Or what, what, what's the protocol there? I think everyone is different. Um, uh, in this chair, I'm very short. So I get a very sore neck looking up at the world. So I do like people to hop down at my level. But if I'm in my other chair, which is higher, you don't have to crouch with me. So I think it's very dependent on your mobility aid and it's very dependent on your relationship. You know, if it's a true friend, they'll probably just plonk on the side of my wheelchair. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's different levels there. But I think getting down to someone's eye level is polite you know, so that we can have a genuine interaction. Yeah. Over the years, have you had to have much treatment or, um, you know, what, what's the sort of the medical world of, of being in a wheelchair, you know, mm. even with sort of, you don't call them bed sores, but like, um, what do you call them? Pressure um, motion, sores. Pressure sores, thank yeah, you, yes. Yeah. Um, look, I think the medical model has a very specific idea about disability and that's fixing it. And we've sort of moved away from that as a community, we understand that it's not something that needs to be, <clears throat> pardon me, necessarily fixed. If someone wants that, fine. But I spent an awful lot of my life having um, testing, having treatments, having surgeries, having all of these different things because doctors just have that view to get you the best that um, you know you can be, which is very admirable, but sometimes it becomes a detriment. You know, I had a lot of physical therapy i had a lot of surgery uh very painful surgeries like i had the adductors in my hips cut muscles in my thighs cut you know i've had all of these procedures lots of casting lots of being stretched um i had to have scoliosis surgery but that's quite common um in people with muscle disease because your muscles just can't hold it up something like that's necessary 
but having all these other things and intensive rehab when you know if you can just actually accept that I'm disabled I can get around a lot better in a wheelchair if I had walked I probably would have only ever shuffled a couple of feet and then not actually been able to get around my community mm-hmm. see so it's kind of like I've been I've been through a lot and and a lot of painful things and have a lot of medical trauma because um everything's just about fixing us so um and because you're a child and your parents are told this is what's best and they're going to want to do what's best quite often we have surgeries that we often later regret mm. and when you say people are trying to fix you what what are they trying to do trying to what's the ultimate goal is it to get someone walking mm-hmm. is it is it mm-hmm. and that was very much the narrative when we were kids so if you think back and i'm trigger warning here for a slur but the spastic center which then became the cerebral palsy league um that's all they did was just rehabilitation to get you to walk the goal was to normalize everyone and i understand where that comes from but you know it's it's not really person-centered it's not thinking about well is this helpful for us is this painful is this you know what, what are the personal goals here you know that the goal was always just to fix us basically Mm. Yeah. Can you tell me the story about when you first the first day of school and um, your parents' decision to put you into mainstream school? Oh, absolutely. This is it, it, probably one of the funniest stories. I think um, my parents just went to enrol me in the local public school, and the principal refused. He said the only place for someone like Elise is at the special school. Now, my parents took offence to this. They said, "Look, she's absolutely capable of getting." A mainstream education you know she's smart she deserves to be here um he just said absolutely not so my parents and my grandparents took on uh new south wales education back then and won and the principal had to take me um but they renovated the school so picture this we're there with the paper just like the chronicle would be if it was here we've got the politicians we've got the ribbon you know everybody's smiling happy we're cutting the ribbon on the ramp and I'll never forget my mother's face. There was a step at the bottom of every single ramp at the school. So I'd already had a delayed education because they hadn't let me go. And then when I went to go, I couldn't go until they redid all of the renovations. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, and was that, where, where, about, where are we talking about? Is this in Goolagong? Uh, Cowra. Cowra. Yeah. Okay. That was the, the uh, bigger school um, in the town near us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, what what type of work were your parents doing? Um, my mum worked at the Edgels factory, um, and my dad was a farmer. Mm-hmm. And hey, had they had ever any experience in either of their families with someone with a disability? No, none at all. So very much uncharted territory. And the fact that they stood up for me so much is just incredible. When they'd never dealt with it before. Mm. Were they just sort of feisty type of people? And they said no. We're not going to take that. We're not going to have her going to the special school. Um, she needs to go to mainstream school. They really believed it then. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. very feisty people, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I get my attitude from. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes, <laughs> what's that saying? The, the um, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'll just remind the listeners that they're on Big Little Small Talk and we're talking to Elise Nilligan, who, um, among other things, is a disability advocate because she herself is has a disability and is in a wheelchair. Elise, um, I just want to talk about your parents a little bit more. You said that um, 
you were the only child of that marriage. Did mm-hmm. did they then go on to get married to other people? Yeah. 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 Do you think that the sort of stress of what was happening in their lives with you do you think that contributed to the breakdown of their marriage yeah absolutely and look the statistics are very clear that the majority of um marriages of children with a severe disability break up you know that the stress and the strain and often i think people blame themselves or each other for the disability which is incredibly sad um i think people get a lot of guilt about having a child that has a disability which you wish that you could be the adult and speak to them when you're a child and say look how I turned out, there's nothing for you to fear. You know, it's, it, it must be very hard. I, I don't have that experience. My daughter is able-bodied and boring, to be honest. <laughs> you know, she's very healthy. Um, so, yeah, look, it did take a lot of a, a toll on them and um, my mum remarried and had more children and they're both um, able-bodied. Mm. So, yeah. so is, is the reason, um, is it a genetic position? Is that what it was, or was it the combination of your parents' genes or is that what they say? Or? Well, it's very unknown because um, you can be a carrier, obviously, and if two people are carriers, they can pass it down. My parents aren't, and so they wonder if I'm just a genetic abnormality. Mm. You can have a child just in utero, the gene just doesn't work properly, and that happens, you know. Uh, they call it a sporadic case. And so they think it's very likely that I was sporadic. Um, my dad's, they thought, was positive, but it wasn't, and my mum's was unclear. So it's not an exact science. Um, it can be, genetics is quite um, complex. Yeah. So as an activist, what sort of things do you do, literally, you know? Um, uh, well, I came out of uni with the view of, I'm going to challenge how society sees people with disability. Um, I actually wrote a show for my third year performance and sold out the little theatre at USQ um, and the content was, it was the speedy show, don't laugh. That's what everyone called it, it wasn't its real name. Um, uh, and in that I showed the reality of life as a disabled person and um, then I burst out into the world and I worked with Dr Sharon Boyce and Tony Mitchell, and you would know Tony, and we did workshops in schools breaking down the stigma of how people see disabled people and so I did that for 11 years while then getting diving into politics and talking about housing and talking about the NDIS and Centrelink and you know just my whole goal is to change how people see us but also change the material conditions that we live with because people with disabilities are the most um, disadvantaged group probably in Australian society today because they don't have equitable access to the things that they need so that's um and i might go to a conference or i might um you know go to something like the awards um launched the other day you know a lot of of networking and um talking to ngos um i'm working with ywca australia right now we're running um peer networking events to teach women with disabilities and non-binary people how to um find pathways into employment and be empowered to be able to find employment so it's really just fighting to make it better for other people with disabilities. That's, that's what I've been doing. Have, um, as you do more and more work and get more and more sort of well-known, you just keep getting extra, you get jobs, do you? Yeah. I mean, do you get paid jobs? They um, pay you to do things? Yeah. Some jobs, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, it depends. Some, um, you know, if it's a government-funded program, you can get paid. But some things are for charity and I'm willing to, you know, drop my fee mm. because I think sometimes the work is 
more important. But hey, it's a bit like being a starving artist. Sometimes you've got to eat right. <laughs> it's, it's a fine balance. Um, but we're trying to promote more and more to pay your uh, people that come in and teach your organisations you should be paying them for that work. Mm, yes. Sure. How did you end up going to USQ? Did the family... So you went to the primary school and they changed the, the everything except for the step at the bottom of the ramp. <laughs> <laughs> and you went through that same primary school, did you? Or? Um, my mum ended up moving up to Queensland. And so I came up here for a little bit and then went back to New South Wales for high school. And then I was sort of tossing up what I was going to do career-wise and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try uni. And so I moved back to Queensland, um, did my year 11 and 12 up here. And then fortunately, thank goodness, got accepted into USQ. So that was, it was a bit of a, uh, what would you say, not a, not a linear trajectory. Yeah. But um, I decided that I really wanted to try and um, get a degree and see where life would take yeah. me. And what degree did you end up doing? Um, I started out doing teaching, believe it or not, thinking that having a... A person with a disability in the education sector could be really, really helpful. I wanted to help other people like me, you know, make school more accessible. Um, but I ended up swapping out to an arts degree and focusing totally on, um, like, changing the way that people see people with disabilities. I did a lot of research into disability. Um, uh, yeah, I have a Bachelor of Creative Arts in theatre um, and literature so that I can write about the experience of disability, mm. which I still do a little bit of writing now. Mm. So let's talk about um, your role models. You know, do you do you see people in movies, on TV, working in shops um, with, well, in your case, say a wheelchair, but other disabilities as well? Like, do you feel that you're underrepresented? Absolutely. You've really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, representation is so important. People call it, you know, being woke or say it's token and all this sort of rubbish. But when I was a little girl, I'd never seen a, a, a woman with a disability on the TV. You didn't see her in Dolly magazine. You never saw her in, you know, movies. There was no one working anywhere like me. So what was I supposed to think for my future when I hadn't seen anyone that looked like me at all anywhere? There wasn't even wheelchair Barbie when I was, I know, now I have one. Actually, we have two. People buy them for me. Um, you know, and so I never saw myself. And that really affected me. I, I, I wasn't outgoing like I am now. I didn't have those dreams. I didn't have those confidence. But thankfully, I was sort of turning into an adult when that constellation of disabled people were really breaking out in the media. So the beautiful Stella Young. I credit Stella with giving me that confidence because she was out, she was disabled, she was unapologetic. She said, this is how it is for us. She was so brave. And she said, you get proud by practicing, get proud by practicing. Mm. And so I took on that mantra and I did that work as many of our peers did. And Stella really paved that path because I think we wouldn't have the representation that we do with people like Carly Finlay, Eliza Hall, you know, all these Naz Campella that works at ABC, you know, we wouldn't have all these incredible people with these public profiles if Stella hadn't banged down that door and got us out there and into this space, mm. you know, because no one heard from us. Our voices were silent. And so now, thank goodness, when little girls go out into the world in their wheelchair or with any type of disability, 
they're seeing people just like them, mm. which is amazing. And yet still things can happen like when you went to get your identification. Well, tell that story to the <laughs> listeners if you could. Absolutely. Um, I went off to the Department of Transport and Main Roads and had my ID taken, uh, ID photo taken. And when I got the card in the mail, it was just the top half of my head. <laughs> no one had actually indicated to me that, hey, we can't actually take a photo of your face. So this is a big thing, you know, inaccessible infrastructure. When you haven't even got a camera or a chair at the at the main roads, you know, to get a picture of someone that's using a mobility aid, we don't have an accessible society. So um, thankfully I, I uh, put it online and it went a little bit viral and the media got a hold of it and we got main roads to apologise and um, replace it and they, they've promised me they're going to, you know, fix up their um, infrastructure to make it accessible and I think I can't be the first person that just got half a head. And I had so many advocates reach out to me on Twitter and say, oh, thank you, thank you for making a fuss. And I think, my goodness, we just can't fight every battle, you know. And people just end up accepting it because they don't want to fight another day, you know. And so I'm really glad that I did get cross about that one because now it's going to be better for other people. And like everything, isn't it? You know, you got to pick your battles. But somehow or other, I think Elise you do things in a way that doesn't get people offside and say, you know, but literally to send you that identification with half of your face missing. Isn't it a brilliant photo? I wish your listeners could see. Oh, yeah, you might have to go online and, um, and see the, the photo that the main road sent to Elise. Let's talk about your political career. How did that start? Um, well, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I was only reflecting the other day. I think I might be a little bit of a hack. I um I actually started working back for the Toowoomba Youth Council under Di Thorley when I was in school um, and I really enjoyed that work and it really taught me a lot about community and serving your community and leadership um, and then I went off to uni and didn't think much about it and then um, as society kind of, I'll be frank, went downhill a bit for the rights of people with disabilities, you know, we'd had some pretty terrible things happen you know with the DSP over 70% of participants um, that apply for it now are rejected. So tell me what that means what is the DSP? Oh the Disability Support Pension. Right so, so what's the statistic know, again? Uh, over... 70% of applications for the Disability Support Pension are rejected. Right. So there's been a lot of punitive measures in welfare in the last couple of decades and so that spurred me into what can I do? What can I do about this? And um, I joined up the Greens, um, purely based on their welfare policies for people with disabilities for their accessible housing and the NDIS, um, and decided to dig in and um, see what I can do. And thankfully, they've been really supportive. And I've actually run a, as a candidate multiple times. Um, and I ran for the Senate last year in the um, in the federal election. And how did that go? Um, okay. <laughs> You're still here. <laughs> I'm still here, yeah. No, it was a, a wonderful opportunity. I got to work with Jordan Steele John um, talking about disability and disability rights and disability justice and um, you can't put a price on that. That was just wonderful. I remember seeing you doing a press conference. I think you were running in the state election mm -hmm. in 2020, in October 2020, and you were um, there with Larissa Larissa Waters. Waters. I was yeah. going to say Larissa White. Larissa <laughs> Waters. And um, you know, was that 
sort of a proud moment. Tell us about some of the really proud moments that you've had. Um, yeah, getting to work alongside people like Larissa and Penny Orman Payne. You know, it's a very pinch me moment. Um, getting to go and meet Jordan Steele John. You know, uh, you just think, wow, I, how humble it is to be around such amazing, incredible people that willingly give their time to mentor you. Um, getting to meet Bill Shorten and chat to him about the NDIS last year, that's definitely up there. I don't often get nervous around Polly's, as you know. We're all friends here. <laughs> um, but I even got a little bit nervous. I said to Bill, my gosh, I'm talking to the person that came up with the NDIS. He said, don't be silly. Don't be don't be nervous. Um, you know, that was a very, very proud moment. You didn't... Um put a little zinger in there that that went wrong or anything like that <laughs> no. you know Bill's famous for his zingers so tell me about the NDIS um h- how do you feel about it and um what are your views on the NDIS oh how long have we got <laughs> um look I'll, I'll be very honest it it has its absolute benefits you know getting people into the community getting them socially activated helping people find employment it absolutely has such good parts of it but there are parts of it that fundamentally don't serve people with disabilities. You know, constantly having to prove your level of impairment, constantly having to prove the support that you need, constantly having to to deal with them. And really, you just need to have the support set up so that it works for you, so that you can have a quality of life. You know, it, it really is there. Bill and I actually spoke about this. It's there to give people agency, okay? That's, that's what it can do. And if we're going to make that work, we've got to get it right. And structurally, right now, it's not working as it should. Parts of it do, parts of it don't. We really need to work on those internal processes and make it something that's, you know, supportive. If you talk to people with disabilities, they'll often say that it's very stressful, very demoralising, very distressing experience. We don't want it to be like that. We want people to engage with it safely freely and feel like it's helping them and right now it's running a bit too much like an insurance scheme and not enough like a support system for the most vulnerable in our community so we've got some work to do would you ever try and get into um you know some sort of policy type area where you're writing policy for people with disability well fortunately i get to do that with the greens yeah um i'm a member of our queensland campaign committee we are the ones that come up with our campaign ideas and um we also as a party as a whole work on our policy with a review every year and so i get to be a part of that and so obviously what we write and what labor writes you know it eventually comes together to form some sort of you know a policy where we're all giving a bit taking a bit so i know that i am making you know a small difference there mm. is the ambition to still try and become some sort of member of parliament do you think oh, at, whether I, at a state or a federal level i'd love to yeah um i'm just a bit tired after covid you know the last couple of years have really taken my zing away um you know being basically housebound um you know it's it's a lot it's been a lot um but i'm i'm hoping that one day yes i'd love to be able to represent uh, the people of australia that have a disability well um and federal politics is my passion so i'd love to serve in the federal space and really just champion people with disabilities everywhere it would be a dream 
I'll just remind the listeners you're on Big Little Small Talk with Megan O'Hara Sullivan and Elise Nilligan, who is now going to tell me about being a model. <laughs> <laughs> tell well, me about. I know that you you love fashion. Mm-hmm. It's a really a big part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, you were featured at Grand Central. Yes, I was. One modelling gig. Tell me about some of the other things you've done in the modelling world. Um, well, I think my outlandish fashion got me noticed. Um, so I became a brand ambassador for the Australian fashion label Little Party Dress. Um, so I promote all of their clothes and I'm so grateful to them that they put their clothes on someone like me with a disabled body so that people are actually seeing us and other people with disabilities can see clothes on somebody sitting down. You know, it's, it's really important. Um, I've just taken a job... Uh, modeling wheel covers for um wheelchairs which is a bit of a dream come true because wheelchairs were like hospital equipment when i was a kid i always dreamed of a gorgeous wheelchair and now i get to get to model it for fun um just describe to the listeners what it is when you say a wheel cover what does that mean and sorry it's like a um a, a cover that goes across your tire but it's in beautiful um bright patterns and colors that can just yeah make it look amazing it's basically like a, I suppose, a hubcap on a car. Yeah, so it's not just the hub, hubcap. It's the part that covers the spokes, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yes, yes. And who, who was the person, people that have, is this the first time you've had something like this? Yes, this yeah. is the brand, um, Colour My Wheels. Yeah, they're an Australian brand. Right. Actually, Queensland. Yeah. Right. So you're an influencer, is that what oh, you're saying? I know, yes. <laughs> I do laugh when people call me an influencer because I suppose I am. Do you have an Instagram account? And yes, I things do. Like that? And you, you do your fashion or is it really all the whole package sort of thing? Oh, I do the whole package. You might get a recipe. You might get a political lecture. You might get my boots. Yeah, my kids. Um, someone said to me the other day, you've got everything on your account. It's like a one-stop shop. <laughs> but, that, that might be the way, the way to go. Where did you get your love of fashion from, do you think? Oh, look, I think, well, my nan was an impeccably dressed woman. She's definitely my fashion idol. I used to um, take her shoes and her jewellery when I was little and put them on and prayed around the house. And um, so I think she played a big role. Um, But I also think that awakening of becoming my own self and and getting that confidence, I started to love fashion more then. Um, Before that, I was a bit more self-conscious, you know, a bit more worried about my body, um, a bit more shy about being in a wheelchair. And I think once I got confidence, then the fashion just became a part of that and it let me have joy in my identity. Mm. So fashion, people think fashion is frivolous, but actually it's very important. Mm. And is it mostly bright colours or what's your kind of, um, you know, what do you love? Um, I, I, I do like a little bit of classic clothing. I do like that Audrey Hepburn you know, a little bit of a chic look, a bit like what you're wearing today. I always love your little neckties and scarves. Beautiful. Uh-huh. They um, serve a purpose, Elise. It's covering up old crepey skin, I can tell you. Yeah. So, no, we're not talking about my fashion. We're talking about your fashion. With um, being in a wheelchair, is there... You said before about you can see someone sitting down wearing the fashion of... Um, what's it called my little party dress yeah. so they advertise with people sitting down in a wheelchair and yes, things yeah yes. and is there anything else that needs to be adapted is it does it need their jackets need to be longer or is are they specific clothing or not really 
they're, they're not um they're not a solely accessible brand um they just promote people with um we have michelle who uses a rollator one of the walkers um i'm in a chair so that people can see how their clothes look um and we choose ones that are more accessible that have like elastication or you know easy for people to get on and off but there are um brands that are adaptable clothes so yet yeah, have velcro have longer you know easy to open buttons magnets things like that we are getting that sort of fashion um but my fashion choices are a bit limited because i just simply can't wear everything in a wheelchair sometimes when you sit down an outfit just doesn't look so good yeah and i mean is it I, I heard um, doing research for this interview, I heard you say something about um, a, a, a doctor or someone said to you, you just have to wear clothes that um, your carer can get on and off. Yes, yes, that's very much the attitude, that we should just dress how it's easy for everybody else. And it's like, that. what, what does that say, you know, what, that we're a burden to other people, that we should only do things that are easy for other people? Um, yeah, so I've never prescribed to that, I'm afraid. Mm. I will shove myself into a pair of jeans or hop around to get a pair of boots on, <laughs> you know. Um, we have to suffer for our art, Elise. <laughs> we do. We do need to. Tell me about going swimming. Do you oh, go swimming? I used to. I'm afraid it's just a little bit too tricky for me these days. I, um, I can't regulate my temperature. So when I swim in a pool, I get a bit too cold. Um, but when I was younger, I didn't notice as much. Yeah. Um, but swimming's very freeing. It's a very freeing experience, and um, I, I really enjoy a bit of hydrotherapy. But we need a nice hot pool. Mm. I did th- just when you were talking about wearing clothes, and I thought how to, and being self-conscious about your body, and the most self-conscious I suppose most people feel is when they're swimming and wearing wearing togs. So, did you feel like that? And yeah, very much. Are there wheelchairs? I know one time when Mum was in a wheelchair, we were up at Noosa, and there was a wheelchair that you could take into the ocean. Uh, have you had experience with that sort of thing? Yes, we actually went up to Noosa when they rolled out the first beach mat and I took my power chair down the beach mat with my kids to the sand and it was just a magnificent experience. Um, but I have been in a beach wheelchair once and we went into this um, into the water and it was, yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. It has to be a hot day, I think, because when that water hits you, it's it's you, you, um, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? Now you mentioned your children, Elise. Mm-hmm. You have an incredible story to tell about having your daughter, mm-hmm. but you have three children, and I understand that two of your children are foster children. Mm-hmm. Tell me about making the decision to foster children. Well, you know, I always wanted to be a parent. Um, I didn't know how that was going to happen. I was told from a very young age that it would be very risky for me to carry a pregnancy um, and that it probably would be unsuccessful. So to think about your options. And so, um, you know, I was kind of resigned myself that I wouldn't have children, but I knew deep down I wanted to. And so when the opportunity came up to, to foster a child, I dove in head first because I thought how beautiful I could give this young person a home um, and give them the love that they deserve and so it was a very easy decision for me um, and thinking that they would be um, you know our our forever children which they are and then to go and as soon as we have them and you hear this from so many people you go and adopt or foster a child and then oh, suddenly oh, you're pregnant that's right <laughs> so um, 
I did hear too you say that it wasn't exactly a, a planned pregnancy. No. Nope. <laughs> but are you, how common is it for people with your condition to have children? Well, not very common at all. But for once, I'm not the first. Yes, I didn't have to be the trailblazer this time. Um, there's a gorgeous uh, lady in the UK. Her name's Fiona Anderson. I met her through my advocacy. Um, she does a lot with the foundation in the UK that looks after my disability. Um, she has two kids two little girls and so she'd had them and she was the first in the world and so I'm the second. You're the second person in the world to have a child? Yes. Oh Elise, what, tell me about going to the doctor when you said I think I'm pregnant, like how did that all sort of pan out? <laughs> this is quite hilarious, um, I was 31 and my um, aunt and my nan went through early menopause so I, just, I went to the doctor not thinking for a second that I was pregnant and I said oh having trouble with my, you know. And he said, oh, okay, it's probably just men early menopause. Let's do a test. We'll just check you're not pregnant, but I doubt you are. Well, oh my goodness, <laughs> we did the test. And I don't know if I was more shocked or the doctor was more shocked. I think it was very mutual shock. Um, and we were pregnant with Alexander. And um, how, how did you go carrying the pregnancy? Like were you, were there complications or is that just a you know, a stereotype to say that there would be complications. It's so funny. Everyone was just catastrophizing. Everyone just thought that I'd have this horrendous pregnancy. I had a dream pregnancy. I didn't even get morning sickness. I was comfortable the whole time. It was just when I got to about 28, 29 weeks um, and they said this would happen. Because I'm so small and sitting that I would run out of room. You know, she'd start to push up into my, my lungs, which can happen to a petite woman. Or a short woman anyway um, and they said once I started to get a bit laborious with my breathing that I'd have to have a c-section so um, at 30 weeks that's what we did and um, but up till then I carried her just fine which is an absolute miracle and will you go back for more do you think <laughs> no as much as I'd love to have more I definitely don't want to repeat the, the experience not not because um it's not worth it but to have a, a knockout C-section, you know, everything's got to be controlled. Everything's got to be safe for me. Um, I had to go to ICU afterwards. You know, it was quite a big recovery. And then my daughter did a 10-week stint in the NICU because um, babies born that early, even though they have a really good odds, they still can't... Um, their lungs and their stomach are the last thing to form. And so they need that time to, to basically finish developing. So that was a very long journey for us. So um, not entirely keen to do it again. Mm, mm. And you've got a family of three, so I'm not sure that you really want to either. <laughs> yeah. And that's an incredible thing. Can Your wonderful partner, Brendan, dropped you here. Yes. Can I just ask you about that and, um, you know, the how that works with your partner? I mean, that, I, I, want, I want to be that person who, I want to be that on that show, who can, you can't possibly ask that or whatever it is, yeah. No, feel free. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, uh, well, I, I had no idea that Brennan was going to fall in love with me. How did you meet? <laughs> um, we actually met through my brother. So he has bragging rights that he, he got to set us up, basically. Um, we started out as good friends and then he asked me on a date. That was that. Um, I can't believe it. <laughs> he's a really great guy and he's just, his thought was, I'll look after you to the extent that you want me to. So he was very respectful about what do you want me to help you with, what don't you want 
help with, you know, and he was very um, confident that he could just help me do things. So, um, but he let me have it at my pace and, and have those boundaries and, you know, but these days, as you saw, he just barreled me up your front step and chucked the wheelchair up there and see you later, love. See you later, love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And is it um, that asking for help? How do you go? You just strike me as such an independent woman. How does that, how does that, sometimes you just don't have any choice or how do how do people get to that point where you have to ask for help and not um not feel um resentful about it and stuff yeah I'm, I'm very stubborn and independent so it takes me a lot of swallowing my pride to ask for help and I often don't let people in into that inner circle because I don't ever want to be somebody else's burden you know and I know that's ridiculous because no one on this earth is totally independent we all need help with something you know um so but yeah i've had to learn that it's okay and that we are a community and we can all be there for each other i'm there for people and people are there for me Mm. and so i've had to let those walls down a little bit and let people in Mm. and you and brendan are engaged yes we are (laughs) is there any immediate plans to get married or we're just too busy with all the work and all the kids and all the you know having our wheelchair stolen (laughs) every time we think we might the joke is someone's going to get married we're going to have another child um there'll be another political race something will get in the way um but the plan is there, yes. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Has Brendan, um, from his family, they were totally accepting about having a partner with a disability? Yeah. He's yeah. never been um, sort of scorned by his grandmother saying, <laughs> you know... I mean, all those things are true that people, particularly sometimes in the insensitivity of people who don't know you... Yeah. Look, we're very lucky Brendan's family's great. But you're right, so many families aren't accepting. Um, uh, Brendan's dad did say... You know, it is a big commitment, you know, making sure that Brendan was aware that, you know, it's 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 something that you have to take seriously, I guess, because we were young, you know, but um, they've, they've all been wonderful. But uh, Brendan's mother was actually in a wheelchair. Um, she had brain cancer and passed away. And so their experience of disability was related to illness, but she used a wheelchair for um, the last couple of years of her life. So they'd had that experience of disability that way Mm, yeah interesting now as per usual unfortunately i've run out of time (laughs) and i did um give you the heads up on my two questions that i like to ask people Mm -hmm. one of them is the first one is um i don't know that you'd be um a fan of the royals although you probably love the fashion um unlike myself who doesn't spend all my time scrolling on instagram (laughs) If I was to ask you, Elise, who your favourite royal is, mm-hmm. what would your answer be? I reckon you can probably guess this, but Princess Diana. Diana. Tell yeah. me about your love of Diana. Oh, I think that she was warm and she was a humanitarian and she committed her life to helping the most vulnerable in the community. And I really admire that. But she also pulled off killer looks, you know, her fashion and her work with the um, bigger fashion houses you know yeah she's just the ultimate yeah Yeah. and she is unlike your and that's why I love this question because it reveals so much about the person who who they who people nominate and even though you're wearing the Diana drop pearl earrings today (laughs) yes what's your favorite Diana look was it when she had the short hair and the um the strapless dress Mm -hmm. and the black and white photos or yeah that era 
Yeah, she sort of really found her confidence, didn't she? Yeah, that's exactly it. Her becoming her true, authentic, strong, beautiful self, not in the shadow of a man. You know, I'm very much for that era, Diana. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Okay, last question. What's the song that can't keep you off the dance floor? I had a good think about this one, actually. I'm a bit doing the 90s nostalgia (laughs) at the moment. Um, I think old school like Spice Girls or Blink-182, you know, the the songs of my youth. I'm getting to that age. I'm really enjoying dancing to that. And tell me about dancing in a wheelchair. Oh, I always have. I never thought of it as odd. Um, You know, I always went off to the school social, the school disco, and um, when coming of age, I went clubbing into woman and danced around all the nightclubs um i really enjoy it is it how do you get on when you're down here and they're all up there and everyone's sort of talking and yelling and and if you and were they even um, wheelchair accessible those nightclubs oh not back when i was clubbing all the time no but thankfully they they um they would make little makeshift rants but it's quite funny um the bouncers would all just grab me and hoik me up the stairs you know i remember remember trevor used to have one of the nightclubs his boys had to carry me down the stairs one night when the elevator broke you know i've had some wild times so you've been um you've literally been on the dance floor carving up the dance floor yeah and you find that people are quite um were quite accepting and then sort of be you know jigging away and then bump into you oh sorry love or, yeah yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were happy to have you there and yeah yeah Weren't patting you on the head in any... No. <laughs> Thank goodness. Night clubs seem to be a good leveller. Um, most people are there to just have a good time. Yeah. And so they just get down and have a bit of a dance and then wander off. Um, <laughs> so, you know, all fun. Oh, Lisa, I can see you on the dance floor with that disco ball going around. I can <laughs> and having a good time because you are such an inspiration and I hope there's people out there who've heard this interview and whether it's in their family or people that they know and feel inspired by your schutzpah and um, determination. So, you know, thank you so much for being my guest on Big Little Small Talk. Oh, thanks for having me, Megan. It's always a pleasure with you. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.